World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Ed McBride, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Guinea-Bissau is close to both South America and Europe, which makes it a tempting way station for drug smugglers. We look at how a flood of drug money has turned the small African country into one of a new generation of narco states. And Silicon Valley has been trying to shed its reputation for sexism. But it still shows a marked gender bias, not just in the people it hires, but also in the products it sells. First up, though. President Trump's relationship with the military has had its ups and downs. He has hero-worshipped the top brass. My generals, those generals are going to keep us so safe. Uh, they're going to have a lot of problems, the other side. And bestowed high office on serving and retired generals. We are going to appoint Mad Dog Mattis as our Secretary of Defense. But he has also made abrupt decisions which have undermined those generals and the military more broadly. James Mattis left his post after Mr. Trump announced plans at the end of last year to pull all troops out of Syria, leaving America's Kurdish allies exposed. And we have won against ISIS. We've beaten them and we've beaten them badly. We've taken back the land. And now it's time for our troops to come back home. Mr. Mattis wrote in his resignation letter that the American military could not fulfill its mission without maintaining strong alliances. This month, the president pardoned two soldiers accused of war crimes and reversed the demotion of a man named Eddie Gallagher. And yesterday, the Navy announced it had canceled investigations into three senior officers involved in Chief Petty Officer Gallagher's case. Eddie Gallagher is a Navy SEAL who was accused by some of his fellow SEALs of committing serious crimes, war crimes, against Iraqis whilst deployed in Iraq. James Astle is the author of The Economist's Lexington column. Uh, he was eventually convicted of posing with a dead Iraqi, a captive, and subsequently demoted. President Trump who has a record of being extremely blasé about military discipline and war crimes, intervened on behalf of, of Eddie Gallagher and demanded that he be reinstated and have his trident pin, the sort of sacred badge of a Navy SEAL, returned to him. So how unprecedented is this? Has the president weighed in on this kind of thing before? Yes, he has. He's often talked about doing so, and he has a number of times, including in two recent cases um, that were highlighted with Eddie Gallagher on 
conservative media where uh, American servicemen were similarly accused. He sees himself as a champion of the American fighting man. It's part of his broader shtick to be with the common man and against the establishment. And and so how did the establishment in this case, the the, the senior officers, the, the kind of top brass in the Navy, how did they respond to Trump's decision to, to uh, reinstate Petty Officer Gallagher? With private horror, it was plainly understood that right from the Defense Secretary down, this was not a popular intervention on the part of the President. And the Secretary of the Navy tried to negotiate with the White House to see if he could sort of mitigate the president's intervention. He ended up failing in that endeavor, falling out with the president and losing his job as a result. How typical is this whole story? I mean, how have uh, President Trump's relations with the military been more broadly? It is typical in that the president has a very Hollywood idea of what military service is about. He glamorizes the tough end of the American war machine. He's an advocate of of torture. He has questioned the judgment of generals who say that actually torture is counterproductive and not a policy that they advocate. At the same time, he, especially early in his administration, hugged some of those top brass very tightly. He employed a number of high-profile retired generals, of course, Jim Mattis, the former defense secretary, John Kelly, his former White House chief of staff. But then subsequently, he he fell out with those retired generals when they turned out not to be the Hollywood tough guy that he appeared to have to have taken all military men for. So if this all is part of President Trump's populist shtick, uh, how is it going down? Is, do we know what the uh, American public or indeed the rank and file of the army feels about his uh, interventions in military matters? Well, I think we can be sure it's going down well with the sort of main target audience of these kind of moves by the president. The president is not intervening in military discipline primarily to try to to win the votes of soldiers. He's doing it because it's popular with his broader conservative Republican base. President Trump knows he's on safe ground with his base, if you like, in intervening in this way. Whether those interventions also go down well with the troops is a little bit harder to say, though we know that by and large, the president is popular with the same demographic segments within the armed forces as he is outside the armed forces, which is to say, he's not uh, very popular with the mid-ranking and higher officer uh, class who tend to be well-educated. He is not popular with the very many non-white servicemen and women in the American forces. He is, by and large, popular with working-class white troops, not terribly well-educated, liable to be evangelical, and especially from southern states, which is his most uh, enthusiastic demographic generally. What is the longer-term effect on uh, the armed forces? Do we, do, do we have a sense of whether this is going to leave a, a lingering legacy? I think there, there are a number of of dangers. Quite obviously, politicizing military discipline is corrosive of the relationship between civilian leadership and military leadership. It's also an extremely bad example to the troops, if you like. It's corrosive of military discipline itself. And I think, think the, the broader politicization 
of civil military relations, which President Trump has been responsible for. He's not the first president to politicize civil military relations, but he's in recent times the most kind of reckless is something that that is of grave concern at a time when civil military relations in America are not close and where the armed forces have until relatively recently been one of the very few exceptions to the sort of politicization of everything in America. James, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Globally, the production of hard drugs is at its peak. Just a few miles from Kandahar, Afghanistan's second biggest city, you can see poppies growing in plain sight. The country's crop has soared over the past decade as the burden of fighting Taliban insurgents has crimped enforcement. In Colombia, too, cocaine production has increased. The business was once controlled by the FARC rebel group, which disbanded after a peace deal in 2016. Since then, new traffickers have rushed to fill their territory, and farmers are planting more coca. But before these drugs are sold on the streets of London or Los Angeles, they have a long journey to make. The traffickers of today are becoming more sophisticated and exploiting ever more elaborate smuggling routes. That's creating new so-called narco-states, with all the violence and corruption that the term implies. One of the regions that's really seeing a big, obvious effects of drugs right now is Africa. Daniel Knowles is an international correspondent at The Economist. Cocaine goes through West Africa. It goes from Latin America and it goes on boats and small planes to Europe. And with heroin, it's a sort of similar story. It goes from Afghanistan south and along the Indian Ocean on shipping vessels, dows often, and get smuggled towards Europe or other places where heroin is more valuable. So why is it that smugglers are increasingly choosing routes that pass through Africa? In Africa, what you have is quite a lot of governments that have not a huge amount of money, that aren't very strong, where corruption is kind of a function of politics, and you have politicians who need to make money to be able to compete. And drugs provide quite an effective way to get money to fund your election campaign, and that draws traffickers. So trafficking allows politicians to make money to stay in power, and that means that the corrupt system where they need that money, it's maintained even further. It makes them weaker. Where exactly is this happening? So a good example is Guinea-Bissau, which has one of the weakest states in West Africa. It's a tiny country, just 1.9 million people on the coast of West Africa. And in the last 10 to 15 years, it's really become a drugs trafficking center. You know, just this year, there have been over two tons of cocaine seized, and that's probably only a fraction of what's actually passing through Guinea-Bissau. And part of the reason why Guinea-Bissau is so popular with drug traffickers is that it's very close to the Brazilian coast. You can fly a small plane from Brazil to these islands and drop cocaine and nobody will spot you. 
Bissau is this small port city and much of the country is these islands that kind of spread out into the Atlantic Ocean and that makes it very easy to smuggle drugs because there's lots of fishermen, there's moving small boats all the time. I went to Guinea-Bissau and I went to the main fishing port and you can see there's hundreds of pirogues coming in and out every day from the islands and so that's very difficult to track. When... Drug traffickers first started coming to Guinea-Bissau about 10 years ago. Cocaine would wash up on the beaches sometimes, and people didn't know what it was. They would use it as detergent even, you know. There was one case of people trying to mark out a football pitch with cocaine. Now people know what it is. So if the drug trade makes weak states even weaker, presumably the the flood of drugs has had a a big effect on Guinea-Bissau. Yeah, I interviewed a young local journalist who runs a think tank there called the Observatory of Democracy and Governance. His name Amadou Jamanka, and he told me, you know, the people running the country have long been involved in drug smuggling. I will not. But the politicians, the army, they all are in the game. Yeah. Guinea-Bissau is a pretty unstable country. It's got this very weak government, dozens of politicians all competing, and they need money. And if you look kind of in elections there, it's a very expensive process. And Guinea-Bissau is a very poor country, so politicians have to get that money from somewhere, and that's really drawn in the drugs traffickers. Traffickers probably first came around 2005. They came with the then-president, Nino Vieira, who was raising money for his campaign. He was assassinated in 2009, just after his army chief of staff was assassinated. Both of those killings were probably linked to a sort of drugs feud. It's quite difficult to know exactly how. In 2012, there was a coup led by Antonio Injai, who was the head of the army, He was wanted by the DEA for alleged cocaine trafficking, and it continues. So is there anyone out there trying to enforce the drug laws? So I talk to people in the police and in the Justice Department, and there are absolutely people, you know, who want to enforce the law. But the fact is that they're prevented to. Police officers told me that they weren't able to do investigations because they weren't given the money to buy fuel for their cars or even to buy credit for their phones. Another official in the Justice Department told me that cases in the courts get held up deliberately for years. So there's some investigation, but it never goes anywhere. So you mentioned how weak states like Guinea-Bissau are transit points for drugs, but is the increase in the drug trade also leading to a pickup in drug use within the country itself? So one of the kind of side effects of this is that cocaine traffickers often pay their contacts in cocaine or in East Africa in heroin, and the people who are benefiting then have to sell it locally. So you have these big local markets for cocaine and lots of users. So when I was in Bissau, I went to a treatment center just outside the city where a lot of young men, mostly few women, have cocaine addictions. I asked people working at the center about drug addiction. They said it was getting worse. They get around 150 to 180 people each year coming through the center. You know, to pay for their drug habits, people are having to steal. And they think it's just going to get worse because nobody's controlling this. The drugs are still available. So what's to be done about all this? Is there any way to avoid the fact that weak governments are are ill-equipped to resist the drug trade? It's pretty difficult because, you know, police forces could always get wise to the tricks of smuggling drugs into a country. But it's much harder to deal with corrupt officials in other countries. And 
I think drugs traffickers will always seek out corruption. There's no other way to run it. And drugs consumption demand is not going down. People will buy this thing. And so there's always going to be profits to be made. And I think the evidence seems pretty clear that if you suppress trafficking in one route, it will just turn up in a different place. And right now it's West Africa. Next, it could be somewhere completely different. So it's pretty difficult to fix this. So there's absolutely no way to stem the tide then? Well, The Economist has long argued for the legalization of drugs, and you can see that that's not impossible. I mean, cannabis is not smuggled from Mexico anymore in the US. Heroin in Europe is much less of a problem, partly because in some countries like the Netherlands, it's actually prescribed to addicts, and that reduces the demand. And, you know, with cocaine, that would work. We legalize cocaine under strict conditions. People would not have to buy it from these traffickers who have all these kind of consequences. So that would be the kind of ideal policy, but that's probably not going to happen. And so you need to focus on the high-level corruption. You need to make it so that politicians can't make money out of cocaine trafficking and get away with it. And that means using sanctions. It means retargeting police resources, which are focused on traffickers, onto the higher-level corruption that allows traffickers to work. And maybe that's really all you can do. Daniel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Silicon Valley may be the most forward-thinking place on Earth when it comes to technology, but less so when it comes to gender equality. The overwhelming majority of its CEOs, software engineers, and designers are male. And this lack of female representation in Silicon Valley is also manifested in the products made there. Tech companies aren't necessarily designing for women through the product design process. Shri Mupadi is our Marjorie Dean intern. So this ranges, for example, from the shape and size of how women's bodies are different from men's. You can see this from products like VR headsets and even smartphones where they may be too large for a lot of women's hands. So this seems, you know, very basic stuff. How has it all gone so wrong? I think an obvious part of the explanation is that Silicon Valley is predominantly controlled by men. And so you can see that with male-run firms receiving 82% of venture capital funding, and then actually a lot of the decision makers at these VC funds are men as well. And so entrepreneurs, when you think about that, they build products that solve problems or address needs that are specifically affecting them. And so they may not necessarily be aware of problems that women may encounter or, for example, investors may actually discount problems that come to them that they personally haven't experienced. So clearly there's a bias in the system, but but surely that gets corrected along the way. Yes. So we would hope that they are corrected along the way, but at times there are actually a lot of oversight of the engineers or the product designers. For example, when entrepreneurs are conducting need finding, which is where they're identifying problems that they're interested in solving or uh, creating a product for, they might not actually be aware of the problems or they might not be asking the right questions when they're doing their user research. For example, coming to a customer and asking about uh, whether this watch fits you correctly versus if that user, for example, a woman wants menstrual cycle tracking, which famously Apple didn't include in its first iteration of the Apple Watch. But as you've implied, these products are all tested. Uh, Don't don't the women they're tested on tell people what's wrong with them or what's missing when when the testing's being done? So, yes, uh, 
we can expect that women may flag those types of areas of concern, but maybe, for example, an engineer might discount that problem or there isn't enough data that is disaggregated so that an engineer is able to tell that this is specifically what a woman wants, but not necessarily a man. For example, when an engineer goes to a group of users for user research, in a group of 100 users, there might be 80 men and 20 women. And if you don't necessarily account for that data based on the women and men and the gender makeup, then you might lose uh, the data points that come out of, for example, by testing for women. And so it's important to disaggregate the data and be able to look at it and analyze based on uh, specific attributes so that the designer is able to then uh, create those products based on those needs. So uh, this just seems like a disastrous own goal on the part of the companies designing these products. Uh, Aren't they missing a, a massive commercial opportunity? Yes, I definitely think so. I, there is a powerful business case for it, especially because women make up half the population. Um, so I think that you would want these tech companies to start designing for these women, uh, have them in front and center when they are considering different products. And I think part of the process is also just incorporating more women on engineering and product design teams so that they are able to provide their input and have it taken seriously. So let's assume the problem is is unconscious bias on the part of the um, Silicon Valley developers. What are they doing? What what can they do to, to fix this problem? A lot of companies are making improvements. This comes from both the tech companies as well as the venture firms. For example, a lot of companies are trying to drive uh, more women into engineering roles and product design roles uh, all across tech itself. So hiring more engineering graduates, encouraging more girls to go into coding and other types of engineering and math-focused fields um, from even middle school on. So having a lot of mentorship programs, for example. And also venture firms are hiring more women as well. So to be a part of the decision-making process, a few firms are focused on just providing or funding for women-focused ideas or having a requirement such that one of the co-founders is a female. So these types of improvements are definitely helping kind of change that landscape. So is this just a problem for tech or does it affect other industries as well? It definitely affects other industries as well. As for example, Caroline Carreta Perez, a writer, put it, it's a world where it's one size fits men. This applies to seatbelts where they're designed for men and may put women more at risk. An astronaut had to give up a spot on a mission because there were no astronaut suits that were actually designed for her. And so it comes across on various different types of products. And it's not just different industries, but also there is bias beyond just gender for other groups like race, ethnicity, ability, as well as age. And I think that hopefully these industries will start to recognize that there is not just a reason to do this because it's wrong, but also because there is a market opportunity that they can hopefully address as well. Sri, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. That's all from us on The Intelligence. But we'd like to know more about you and what you think of the show. Do us a favor and head over to economist.com slash podsurvey. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. 
And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.